The relationship between the war on drugs and the war on abortion is extraordinary. Everyone is fighting for the same thing, a meaningful, universal public health system that addresses health needs, all of them, even the ones that have been stigmatized, even the ones that are constantly subjected to junk science claims that all public health is addressed as public health and never as criminal law matters. listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, Narcotica listeners. I'm Troy Farah, beaming to you from the high desert in California. With me today is Zachary Siegel in Chicago. How's it going, Zach? It's hot. Well, I know that feeling. For better or worse, many drugs are controversial. Even though they're just chemicals, they can trigger passionate emotions, inspire complex, dangerous laws, and radically alter culture. Uh, Narcotica is a show that doesn't shy away from this controversy. We embrace it and try to put it out of its misery. For example, we just did an episode on prescription heroin, an idea that some people will probably never be comfortable with. But today we're going to talk about some of the most controversial drugs of them all, drugs that are often overlooked in the debate about reforming drug policy. I'm talking about abortifacients, drugs that induce miscarriage, ending pregnancies. On Narcotica, we are pro-abortion. In fact, I personally love abortions. That's not something you'll hear very often, but it's true. I love them. I've never had one, obviously. I'm a man. I've never paid for one or even been present for one, but I view abortion as a life-saving medical procedure that is essential to women's health. We're also pro-pregnancy here, in case anyone wants to accuse us of hating babies. In fact, I just had a great weekend hanging out with my sister and her 20-month-old. The point is that deciding whether or not to be pregnant should be a woman's choice. Unfortunately, in the land of the free, that isn't always the case. Our guests today are two of the hardest-working people in public health. We are proud to welcome Lynn Paltrow, the founder and executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. And joining Lynn is Francine Cueto, co-founder of Plan C Pills, co-founder of the Pro-Choice Alliance for Responsible Research, and a founder of the Pacific Institute for Women's Health, among other things. Both of you, welcome to the program. Thank you. People obviously have strong feelings about abortions, and some do raise good faith ethical concerns, and I think that's normal. But legislating based on those feelings, creating public health policy based on those feelings, and threatening women's health and freedom based on those feelings is a problem. So today we're going to talk about the science and history of abortion drugs. Because, well, first, it's fascinating and an issue that's highly relevant whether you're a man or woman. And it may not be obvious but there is also a ton of overlap between abortion, reproductive justice, and the world of harm reduction, which we'll get into, such as draconian so-called fetal assault laws. But in case our audience tunes out and no judgment, we want to give you a few resources up front. If you need to obtain abortion pills for any reason for yourself, for your mother, for your sister, or your neighbor, go to plancpills.org or aidaccess.org. 
You can order these drugs discreetly and they will arrive at your door with your Amazon packages and student loan bills. In the show notes, we'll also post links to abortion funds in states where regressive laws are threatening a woman's right to choose. So to get us started, Lynn, this question goes to you. Let's have you describe the current political landscape for abortion access. Over the past few months, these so-called fetal heartbeat bills have created a storm of protest and debate, which aim, some of which aim to ban abortion after just six weeks, which should be pointed out is very early. Many people may not even know they are pregnant at six weeks. So for one thing, is there really a quote heartbeat at six weeks? And developmentally, how mature is, say, the nervous system in a fetus at six weeks? Those are interesting questions, but I think the more important one is why are states going so far as to essentially make it impossible for any woman to have an abortion? Because many women don't even know they're pregnant until they're eight weeks uh, along. And the naming of the laws, heartbeat laws, are part of a more than 40-year effort to personify fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses and take away the personhood of pregnant women. These are just new permutations. They're even more radical. Uh, Each of those so-called heartbeat laws include provisions declaring uh, recognition of separate personhood or inalienable rights for fertilized eggs, embryos, and fetuses. That ideology is used not only to stop abortion, it is used to create state power to control arrest and surveil anybody who has the capacity for pregnancy. If I may uh, bring bring up something about six, six weeks and how early that is. I think to put it in perspective, we need to remember that there's an estimate of possibly 48% of all pregnancies ending in miscarriage. That means it, it can be even after six weeks and it is considered a miscarriage. You didn't even know you were pregnant and you have a heavy period and that is a miscarriage. So just to put it in the perspective of the body and the, and and how real six weeks is, as Lynn has said, most people do not even know until eight weeks, until you really missed a whole period, you know, a whole cycle. That's what is your identifier as a woman. So, yes, let's just be very frank. This is really an attempt to try to uh, bring it down to a a time that is no longer reasonable, really a way of outlawing abortion. These laws also are based on junk science, um, many false claims about uh, perception of pain, as if women who uh, seek to have abortions want to cause Uh, fetuses pain or don't care. The vast majority of women who have abortions are already mothers and will become mothers. Uh, These are laws that are part of a larger political strategy. It's not as if there's some new research of any kind that justifies these new laws. In fact, when Roe v. Wade in 1971 was argued before the Supreme Court, one of the arguments to uphold Texas's law, criminal law banning abortion, was about all this new science about fetal development. And they put into their briefs photographs of fetal development from the earliest stages. So 
there's no new science. These laws aren't based on some new discovery about heartbeat or pain or anything else. They are part of a very strategic plan to bring cases to the Supreme Court in the hope that Roe v. Wade, the decision recognizing the right to choose abortion, will be overturned. And states will once again uh, have the power to control and punish women in a way much more similar to the 1800s than the 2000s. And, and just so for, for, for context for our listeners, this new six-week ban comes from there, there's 12-week bans or 18-week bans or 20-week bans. Like it just, this is a, this is like a, like you're saying, Lynn, a very sort of, uh, this is part of a much larger effort to bring the, to close the window constantly. And it's like you give people an inch and they take a foot. Like that's sort of what, what's always is happening in this space. In Roe v. Wade, in the 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court said states may, if they choose, and they're not required to, may only outlaw abortion after a fetus achieves viability. And that's kind of a hypothetical hypothetical. If we imagine that the fetus were outside of the woman's body already, it would have a certain chance of survival, meaningful survival, not just live birth. Uh, the Supreme Court recognized that women were persons through all stages of pregnancy. There isn't a point in pregnancy where they stop becoming persons. And under the U.S. federal constitution, personhood is achieved at birth. And I want to add that I think the reason they picked six weeks, a very arbitrary number, but not so arbitrary when you think of strategically, because what we've been pointing out is that before 10 weeks is when 89% of all abortions are done. And for the longest time, their strategy has been to focus on um, second trimester abortions, which is a very, very small number of abortions in the country. And then they even have these ridiculous statements by the president at all about at-birth abortions, which doesn't ever happen, exist. But that's what they're doing because then they can have the visuals that go with it. We have been fighting back with data and evidence that in fact, most abortions are early, they're before 10 weeks. And frankly, one of the things that this um, medication abortion that we're about to talk to does is it allows people to do it even earlier, much earlier than if you go to a clinic because you have less obstacles to overcome to get your abortion. So this whole thing that we have been, we meaning the pro-choice people have been constantly saying is early is better, People know, people get that. And so the right now is trying to come up with this six week that's under the 10 weeks. And then they're trying to get a visual out of it by calling it a heartbeat. Biologically, that doesn't even make sense. Biologically, you have differing, differentiating cells in your body that are making your new kidneys that are just as alive as a six week embryo. It, 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 it doesn't make any sense. There is nothing anywhere close. There's not even a heart, much less to have a heartbeat. There's barely electrical activity going on. So again, this is an approach to try to fight the fact that most people in this country believe that you should be able to determine your, your fate in early pregnancy and that most abortions are early. And they're trying now to try to scare people into, you know, having a visual for before 10 weeks. That's where I think that they got the six week. 
Thank you. That's some really great background. So, you know, abortion access has not historically been very available to a lot of people in a lot of communities, especially outside of city centers. Um, so some of the solutions that we have are these two drugs. Uh, I hope I'm saying this correctly, misoprostol and mefepristone. What are these drugs and how do they work? There's a difference between these drugs and emergency contraception or so-called morning after pills. Why is it important for people to have access to these, especially now in the current political climate? And should people preemptively order these things from websites like plancpills.org? I'll start with the difference between abortion pills and emergency contraception, the morning after pill, plan B, whatever you want to call it. So there's a big difference. Um, though the morning after pill, emergency contraception, um, happens only, it's only works if it's within 48 hours after an unprotected act of intercourse. Really all it's doing is it's trying to help make sure that if you have a fertilized egg, it won't implant. So it's, it doesn't have a long window. That's part of the reason we had to work very hard to have it be over the counter because if you're gonna use it, you need to use it immediately after you've had unprotected sex. It is a contraceptive. It is a way of trying to make sure you don't get pregnant. Whereas the abortion pills is more something you take once a pregnancy is in place, meaning an egg has already implanted in your, in your uterus. So that, I hope, explains the difference between plan B or the emergency contraception and abortion pills. We were really excited uh, 19 years ago, in the year 2000, when it became clear that there was an abortion pill, a French abortion pill, you might remember those of us that are old enough, 46, the French abortion pill. Anyway, all of those who are working for reproductive rights and reproductive access got really excited because, oh my gosh, here was a pill that could help you safely terminate an early pregnancy. And anybody who can imagine a pill being easier than go to a clinic where you have to have a procedure done to you, realize, wow, this is really important for access, right? If it can be as easy as taking a pill. That became the beginning of the downhill slide of restricting access so that the new technology, this transformative technology that was going to make terminating an early pregnancy safe, effective, safely, effectively, and easily would not be find its way into the hands of the people who need it because abortion is very stigmatized and, and in political in this country. It was all political. From the day the FDA approved this product for the use in the United States, they couldn't stop it out of for safety and efficacy because the data was so clear that this was so safe and effective that being scientific, they couldn't say, no, we won't approve. So they approved it, but then found a way to restrict its distribution so it would not fall into the hands of those who need it. That was the beginning. That was in the year 2000. The FDA pulled some funny little thing that they had on their back shelf of uh, regulation to restrict its distribution, supposedly to protect the, the health of women, but there is no scientific evidence that there is any reason to have protected it. It was because it was an abortifacient. It was an abortion pill. And so we have been living since then with a restricted access to this pill and 
I'll stop here and we can talk more about how does one get access given that there are these restrictions that were put on by a political FDA at that time. It was under the first Bush administration. We knew when we put in the request for the FDA approval that um, we would get it approved because the evidence was so clear. What we didn't realize is that they would figure out a way to put this restriction that essentially means that the only way you can get legal access or, or regulatory correct access in this country is if you go to an abortion clinic because that's the distribution method that they devised for this product. It's not in the pharmacy like every other pharmaceutical product that gets approved. It gets approved, it gets put in the pharmacies, doctor write prescriptions, you go to the pharmacy. This one, no. This one you could only get through abortion clinics. At Troy and Zachary, I'm going to um, interrupt with a uh, just a little side story to give Francine a chance to catch her breath. Francine's explanation and history of mifepristone and misoprostol remind me of a meeting I was at some years ago. It was a meeting around uh, issues around addiction and drug dependency, and many of the people who attended were hardcore research scientists. Uh, several of whom absolutely believed that they would could discover a magical medication that would help people overcome addiction problems, that it was really only a matter of time and they would come up with that uh, medical pharmaceutical solution. And I, I got to know them and they were lovely, smart people. And I said to them, you know, we have drugs like methadone and buprenorphine that have helped significantly with people with dependencies for one drug, opioid. Uh, but the government so overregulates it that people really can't get access to it. For groups of people who are not typically supported, who face enormous stigma and discrimination, uh, even if the medication is there and it works, whether it's methadone or buprenorphine, methapristone or misoprostol, the FDA and other government agencies make it extremely difficult to access those safe and effective medications. Uh, I think sometimes uh, people who are advocating for the right to choose abortion believe that they're the only group of people who face overregulation. But we have enormous number of allies and the potential for greater political strength if we see each other as allies by recognizing that inappropriate government interference with access to medications that are safe and effective undermine health for people who are particularly stigmatized, whether because they are perceived as having a drug problem or they are people with the capacity for pregnancy and they want to end that pregnancy, all together have an interest in persuading government authority to ensure access to healthcare, not barriers to healthcare, not further stigmatization based on medical misinformation that they perpetuate through unnecessary overregulation. Wow, thank you so much. That that is exactly what we need for this episode because you know someone was like, "What does abortion drugs have to do with narcotica?" And I'm like, "What does it not have to do with?" <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, and and to just piggyback on what you're saying, Lynn, it, you know, in in terms of stigmatized groups and uh, experiencing barriers to care, I can't think of a a more stigmatized and frankly loathed group in, uh, in the population than pregnant women who have an addiction 
And in terms of them getting access to methadone and buprenorphine, these drugs not only save the woman's life, but they also save the uh, life of the fetus and the, the newborn. And it's so critical that that issue is is part of this conversation too. So really, that's, that's an amazing point. And to uh, keep the conversation going about these specific drugs, um, like how expensive are, are they? So I often hear uh, abortion framed in terms of not just bodily autonomy, but also as a battle for, for economic justice. So rich white women, for example, I mean, they can probably afford to have abortions. They can travel outside the country to have one. They, they have all these resources to marshal to, to help whatever situation in, uh, that they're in. So how expensive are these drugs and does insurance cover them? Can, can you walk us through the economics of, of this issue? Um, I'll take that question, Francine. But um, whether you're getting those drugs, whether you're getting a medication abortion with those drugs through a clinic, or whether you're doing it self-managed. And it's very, very different. So for the clinic, <laughs> the clinic is about, it varies around 500 to $600 if it's an early termination, meaning before 10 weeks. Um, very frankly, the history of how we came up with that price is that when, when we introduced medication abortion in the clinics as an alternative to the other method, which was a procedure, we didn't want people to have to choose based on cost. And so we put the price at the same at the same rate. So when you go in for to Planned Parenthood for an early abortion, needing an abortion in the first uh, before 10 weeks, you have a choice in most places uh, between a procedure and these, these pills, and you will be charged the same amount. And insurance will cover depending on what state you're in. You're back to the insurance coverage of, you know, if you're in a state in which insurance covers, it's covered. If you're in a state in which it doesn't, you're paying out of pocket. That's the clinic route. The, um, the, the price of what it costs if you're self-managing is based on where you manage to get the, the pills. And here I'm just going to talk about the, the combination, meaning the MIFI and MISO. It's often called an abortion kit, meaning it has the, the, the two pills. You take one, the MIFI, the first, and then 24 hours later, you have to take the other, the misoprostol. And together, they are what is considered medication abortion. And that's together is what gets you to the 98, 99% effectiveness and 99% effect, uh, safety. Um, so I'm just going to talk about those. It's the MIFI, the first one that is highly, highly restricted by the FDA. Um, and it's because of those restrictions that you end up having to, if you want to do it by yourself, if you want to self-manage and you're not going to a clinic, you don't have access to a clinic, then you're talking about how to access the pills, usually online. That's probably the best opportunity is to purchase online. And that's, we have a lot of evidence and experience. That's what we do at Plan C is we have a report card in which we try to share the information with the public about what we are learning by going on purchasing online. Um, what we're learning is that the 
there's a huge demand, or there are now 80, eight zero websites that say they will ship you the abortion kit. And what we do is we go on and we test them and we uh, document how long it takes, how much it costs, and uh, whether the product is a good one, whether it's a product that we can vouch for. Um, I can just tell you that the price is going down, partly because of our website. I think we're using market forces to drive the price down. They're, they're just competing. We do know what the product costs. If you were able to go to India and buy it, most of these are Indian products. And it says right on the, on the kit, uh, it, it, you know, in rupees, what it is inclusive of taxes, it's about $5 US is the price of retail price of the pills if you were able to go to India and purchase it there. By the time you've done it online, the average when we started looking was 300. We think they picked that number by just taking half of what they knew it cost you to go to a clinic. It was a randomly picked number and they got lots of people purchasing, so they kept it at that until we brought the price down by having uh, aid access, the top site on our website, come in at under 100. And now there are more sites that will do it for under 100 or around 100. So I, I would say it's coming down um, and it's just market forces that are going to determine how much, how much it costs. Wow, that's incredible to hear again how arbitrary all these numbers are. And like I, I tend to blame capitalism for a lot of problems. And in this case, it's like how... <laughs> it's so absurd that someone can set the price like that. Yep. Yep. We did want to talk a little bit about the um, the legality uh, here uh, of ordering these drugs online, having them mailed to your house, uh, and possessing them because there are some some laws on this. I think um, there are some healthcare professionals that have received FDA warnings saying stop mailing these drugs, and I, I just love the fact that they have just ignored them. Um, I think there was one person in Austria. Uh, that, you know, she got she's like, I'm not, I'm not subject to the jurisdiction of the FDA. Like, I don't have to pay attention to this. Uh, can we talk a little bit about um, if you can be arrested for possessing these, if they can, or, or any other legal problems like that? Well, let me take, let me just take this, this, the example you gave. It's Rebecca Gompertz, who is the one who started Aid Access, which is at the top of our report card. It's at the top of our report card because she's charging less than $100. And she provides medical backup by, by being a doctor who will give you information. The pill is still shipped by an Indian distributor. She's not shipping the pill. It's you, you end up getting it from the Indian distributor. But the point is, Rebecca did get this letter, as you said, from the FDA. And not only is she not, she's not ignoring it. She's fighting back. She's basically saying, like you said, no, you don't have jurisdiction over me. I'm a doctor and I will do what I need to do. And by the way, your restrictions, we believe, are actually, you know, against the constitutional rights of women in the U.S. So really beginning to, to bring to light, and I'm going to let uh, Lynn talk about this more, bring to light the situation we find ourselves in around the legality in this country. It's, it's, not, it's not that it's an illegal drug. Like I said, it's been FDA approved and it's used in clinics all the time. It's that it's restricted. And so if you start trying to get it through a distribution network that is not the one that has been prescribed by the FDA, is when you get into trouble. So I'm going to let Lynn take it from here. 
Well, first of all, if you go to my organization's website, National Advocates for Pregnant Women, advocatesforpregnantwomen.org, you will see a letter that we prepared with our allies at If When How uh, sent to the FDA asking them to withdraw their warning letter uh, against online providers of abortion medication and also to withdraw the REMS, Risk Evaluation and Management Strategy, uh, which are restrictions for access to mifepristone that have no foundation in medicine. And I know Francine can talk more about what those restrictions are. And this is a letter that talks about the fact that this is uh, uh, safe and effective medication, uh, that uh, denying it to a group of people who have been using it effectively and safely all around the world is very much like the denial of access uh, to medications for HIV and AIDS 20 years ago. So our letter points out that they are depriving certain groups of people, people with the capacity for pregnancy, people in the past with HIV and AIDS, of access to medication that is safe and effective uh, for, and important for their health and their lives. Uh, as we know, the possession, uh, very few states, as far as we know, make possession of these medications a crime. There is nothing dangerous about this medication that can be used effectively and safely uh, for a number of purposes, including ending pregnancy. Our position is that no person should fear arrest, prosecution, uh, surveillance, or control for taking care of their health. Human beings need to do that. I think everybody who wakes up in the morning and doesn't feel well hopes that they're not gonna have to go to a doctor, that they're gonna be able to find a remedy at home uh, that will uh, resolve whatever health problem that they're ha having. And fortunately, we now have these medications that enable women to do that. Threats of arrest are inappropriate uh, and they are unconstitutional. There are fundamental human rights that women and have, that people with the capacity for pregnancy have. Uh, half of the people, if we believe uh, that everyone in the United States is entitled to the protections of the Constitution, those protections have to apply to the half of the human beings who have the capacity for pregnancy. And their health care needs should not be thought of as separate or different or special. It's just what half the people need. And those people need health care that relates to their capacity for being pregnant, uh, becoming pregnant. And that includes not only the ability to safely and effectively end a pregnancy, but also to be able to go to term and be supported when they do go to term. Our country not only creates barriers at this point to accessing abortion, but for example, Alabama's been in the news. Not only are there uh, only one abortion clinic uh, left in that state, not only are there no abortion clinics in, uh, in most of Alabama and certainly not in any of the rural areas, there are also very few OBGYNs. So women who are hoping to go to term can't deliver with an OBGYN and there are restrictions on midwives in that state. So these are, these are actions that are not even specific to abortion. They are specific to certain groups of people in denying them access, equal access to the healthcare they need to lead health and safe lives. And it's healthcare that the everybody needs in order to ensure the survival of the species. 
Can can we talk about how in a lot of these states and a lot of these laws that we're talking about that just like the criminal justice system there there are disparities in who is affected by these. So in the south black women for example is it that they are much less likely to be able to access abortion are they much less likely to be able to access um like you're saying OBGYN healthcare services generally and it reminds me of just the this very sad fact in this country that the infant mortality rate for black women is is, is much much higher and the um and so yeah can we talk about how race is is sort of always at work when we're talking about this issue in terms of the overview, uh, National Advocates for Pregnant Women did a study, a peer-reviewed study, looking at uh, arrests, detentions, and forced interventions that would not have happened but for pregnancy. And we looked from 1973 when Roe v. Wade was decided until 2005. And we were able to identify with absolutely uh, firm documentation 413 cases. And those were mostly arrests, and the majority of cases, but not all of them, do involve allegations that a person, a woman, is pregnant and she used a criminalized drug. Uh, Overwhelmingly, the people targeted for investigation and arrest are low-income women. And during those years, uh, very disproportionately, uh, more than 50% were black women uh, and other women of color. Black women were also more likely to be charged with felonies and more likely to be turned in by healthcare providers. One of the things that's interesting is that uh, Alabama currently leads the nation in arrests of women in relationship to pregnancy. And that's because the Supreme Court of Alabama interpreted a chemical endangerment of a child law that was passed to punish adults who took children to dangerous places such as meth uh, meth labs, has been used and upheld as a mechanism for addressing pregnant women and drug use. In Alabama, where the drugs that are most likely to be used are methamphetamine and opioids, the majority of people currently being arrested in that state are low-income rural white women. But as we see with the criminal justice system and efforts to expand control uh, by the state, uh, the recent arrest of Marche Jones, a woman who was five months pregnant, uh, got into some kind of altercation and herself was shot in the stomach, lost her pregnancy, and then charged with manslaughter uh, because she had put herself in a dangerous situation. We see this woman, a black mother of a six-year-old, the first time that the state tries to make yet another brutal expansion of their criminal law, the first person targeted is a black woman. So we see that as Michelle Alexander made clear, the war on drugs is the new Jim Crow. I would argue that the the war on uh, women and abortion, one could describe as I have as the new Jane Crow, because it does much more than just, never just outlaws abortion. It creates power of the state to control certain people. Prohibition never works. Prohibition didn't stop people from drinking, doesn't stop people from using drugs. Before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was illegal, a million women each year 
had abortions despite uh, it being criminalized. So government knows that prohibition doesn't really work. So why do they do it? They do it because it gives them power to control certain populations. And those populations are the ones that have always been in control, controlled in this country. The legacy of slavery, black people, uh, the idea that you could arrest women in relationship to their pregnancy came from the very racist targeted attack on black mothers who allegedly used the smokable form of cocaine called crack, in spite of the fact that the claims of harm turned out to be pure mythology, purely racist. But they set into place uh, policies and assumptions that it is okay to view women who go to term and use any amount of any drug uh, and regardless of their race, as criminals, rather than as people who are risking their lives and health. You are very right that we have an extraordinarily high uh, maternal and infant mortality rate, three times higher maternal uh, mortality rate for black women. And that is all part and parcel with our unwillingness to provide people with the health care they need and to ensure that everybody has access to that health care. Rather, we resolve public health issues, whether it's drugs or abortion or birth, through policing rather than through public health. The public health indices show that basically being a woman in Alabama is bad news. And then you add on it a low-income woman and you're really in trouble. And then you add race to it and you're even more in trouble in terms of the, the, the fact that you are just not going to access care in the same way, or you're not going to be treated as, uh, preventively in the same way that you should be for health. So you, not surprisingly, are, get these really bad indicators of, of child health, maternal mortality. They're the worst in the country. So it's clearly political. It's clearly a way. And coming back to abortion access, I mean, really, frankly, we've had Roe versus Wade for a long time, and it supposedly protects people all over the country. But we've watched state by state, the, the, the worst, the most egregious states basically make it so that it's just on paper that you have a right to an abortion because good luck finding a provider. I think that the reality of recognizing, thanks to these really egregious laws that have recently been proposed, it's bringing to light what people who lived in those states have known for a long time is they've already been hammered and, and, and they already have very little access. And this is just more and more clear that it is an attempt to make sure that um, they, know, they not get their, their rights um, covered. Um, if I may say, I think that the piece of what this um, self-managed care and, and, and the, and the democratization of the internet and the global nature of our market system has made has meant that people in these in these states have equal access frankly to me in Los Angeles because internet is doesn't look at borders neither does the post office look at borders and the truth is is we have been seeing uh, for example, Aid Access, who the the woman who from Austria who has been serving, has shipped has has helped people in every state in the country, including the states in which you would think, you know, it would be impossible to get these, but they're come they're getting through. People are using, and people are using to a level that we really hadn't recognized until recently. We really do have evidence that. Um, 
Last year, it was in the tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousands of people who, while we were doing all this politicking about access to abortion in our country, um, they were getting their needs met. They went online, they purchased the pills, they knew how to take them correctly, they took them quietly, nobody even knew about it, no impact on the emergency rooms, nothing, except they got their needs met. And I think this is, this is part of the good news. Um, it's, it, it's really important to recognize that these pills are so safe and so effective and really so accessible now. Frankly, you, you asked about cost. Yeah, we, for less than 100 compared to 600, and that's not even counting the cost of taking time off work to get to the clinic, to go to the many appointments that you have to go, to possibly travel across states. All of those barriers are gone. You just have to be able to access, get it shipped to you, take them correctly, and correctly is pretty easy. And again, life just goes on. And I think that that's what I want to just talk about. I mean, in a way, back to Lynn's point about examples, if you'll remember that movie, The Dallas Buyers Club, I mean, that was a, a, an example of having to try to come up with some method of getting people access to something that wasn't accessible because of weird restrictions, <laughs> not because the product wasn't good or safe. It was just a weird restriction and you needed to find a, a workaround. And the workaround now today here in this country is online purchasing and self-managing an early abortion and moving on with life. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the Dallas Buyers Club because it is a really good example of people who are impacted by an illness, know that there are drugs out there that work, and fight the system and organize collectively to save each other's lives when really the government and the establishment industries of medicine should be stepping in to do it. When those groups, when those institutions fail, people find a way. And I think that you're, what you're saying is really inspiring and is a testament to the ingenuity of people who suffer and are targeted. And uh, it's just amazing to hear that this kind of action and this kind of mobilizing is happening. And and which brings me to, to one other point that I, I think I heard you making was that the sort of brazenness of these six week bills and the uh, like case of Marche Jones, that all of this is bringing, you know, clear as day how absurd and dangerous things have gotten. And maybe, you know, in an accelerationist kind of way, things really are changing because of how bold and how brazen and uh, oppressed the uh, the people are and how visible they are now. Well, let, people have talked about um, the personhood movement and referred specifically to claims of fetal personhood, but the real personhood movements are groups like Black Lives Matter. And when you talk about things have gotten to a certain point, well, they've been at that point for some groups of people in the United States for a very long time. But we hope that one of the positives that comes out of this pregnancy is a, a, an awareness among many more people of the extent to which discrimination and stigmatization and uh, inequality exists in this country. Um, I, I want to make the point that 
uh, making misoprostol and mifepristone available, making sure that people have access to safe and effective medications is also very much like the efforts to provide clean needles, to have needle exchange, even when it was outlawed, even when people had to do it in an underground manner. Uh, it was clear for years and years and years that if you gave people clean needles, uh, they would be able to prevent the spread of HIV and other illnesses, and yet the government opposed it. People acted together to provide clean needles despite all of the obstacles, despite the fear that they could be arrested for doing so, uh, or what one colleague, Naomi Brain, calls illegal public health. People will step in to do what they need for themselves, but we will step in with each other to ensure that folks have access to the health care and support they need. And in fact, the relationship between the war on drugs and the war on abortion is extraordinary. Uh, in a case in which a woman was arrested for having an illegal abortion in Idaho. Idaho still had an old pre-row law on the books that made self-abortion its own crime. Fortunately, uh, Richard Hearn, on behalf of uh, Jenny McCormick, was able uh, to have that law declared unconstitutional. But the Attorney General stood up and defended the state's right and, in fact, obligation to arrest women who self-managed an abortion in exactly the same terms that the war on drugs is justified. We must be able to arrest people to protect their health. And what everyone, whether they're listening as, an, uh, as a drug policy reformer or harm reduction reformer uh, advocate, or see themselves as pro-choice advocates, reproductive rights and justice advocates, everyone is fighting for the same thing, a meaningful, universal public health system that addresses health needs all of them, even the ones that have been stigmatized, even the ones that are constantly subjected to junk science claims that all public health is addressed as public health and never as criminal law matters. And I would, I would like to add to that the fact that back to the idea that when we first heard that it could be as easy as a pill, this is what we're back to now. We've been trying for four, for Plan C for four years now has been just wanting to make public the information that there are these safe, effective pills and that people in the rest of the world have been using them, self-managing them, using them very honestly. If you go to Planned Parenthood to get a medication abortion, you're going to self-manage your abortion because they're going to hand you the pill, tell you to go home, and you take it at home. It's a self-managed pr process. It's the distribution in which they have a vice over in order to stop the enablement of being able to do it by yourself. And so by sharing the information that this is available and then finding out that there is this global market that's willing, there are these uh, distributors who are quite willing to ship to the U.S., even though they really shouldn't be, and then making it then back to the transformative uh, opportunity that we have to just take a pill early on when we have a health need is what this is all about. And I think the best analogy really when it comes to how much risk are you taking or willing to take on to do this, it really is, it should be similar to the risk that an elderly person, my, my mother, when she goes online to a Canadian uh, pharmacy 
because she needs her heart medication and it's a tenth of the price that it would be if she purchased it here. I don't hear anybody trying to say that my mother is a criminal. I don't hear anybody trying to even stop my mother. I have heard of people, the FDA and pharmaceutical truck companies trying to put a stop to that because they're losing money because of the obstacle of cost. But it isn't about protecting my mother by stopping her from doing it. So really, when it comes down to the questions of, is this illegal for us to do as an abor abortion? It really is about the politics of abortion. It is not to protect me from you know, a bad pill that I got online. It is not. It is because you do not want me to take it to my own hands and do it myself. So that's the part I want to be very clear about. And that's the part, again, where I feel like, wow, it's working. People have got, got this. And the beauty of it is, is the people that I most wanted to reach are being reached. They have smartphones. They have smartphones in Alabama, in Georgia, in, you know, in rural Montana. They have smartphones, and that's really all it takes. And they're getting the word, and they're spreading the word to others. And it's not going to be easy to stop because it's so pragmatic. It's so, you know, people have a need. They'll always have a need. We will always have a need for an early abortion. And if it can be so easily resolved by getting around the politics of clinic closures, then more power to the internet. Can't believe I'm saying that. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Um, it is important to underline the fact that, uh, you know, restricting access to abortion is not the same thing as making abortion go away. Uh, it just makes it, you're, you can only restrict access to safe abortion. Um, and there's also this misconception, you know, uh, while some of these abortion drugs may be relatively new, if you examine the history of abortifacients, the, the history of using drugs to cause miscarriage, it goes back literally thousands of years. There are many examples. There's myrrh, the plant that's in the Bible, uh, olive oil mixed with lead and other primitive techniques. Abortion is not some kind of new technology or some technology that will be out of reach for women if you try to ban it. Uh, the only difference now is that abortions can be done much more safely. And the point I'm leading to is, um, you know, some people have been encouraged recently to take quote-unquote natural abortifacients, which can be extremely dangerous. There was uh, recently a tweet that went viral about this. I won't name the tweeter, but they were encouraging women to take things like asafoetida, a plant from Afghanistan, and penny royal tea in order to induce abortion. Uh, and the tweet inspired a lot of backlash. While that backlash was warranted, there are some good reasons why women seek out these so-called natural remedies for medicine. Erin Baiba, a science journalist, recently did an incredible piece for Dame magazine that asked, why are so many women rejecting medical science? And she really illustrates that the healthcare system consistently fails women. I understand why some of these alternatives are attractive to some people, but what does that say about the current access to safe abortion drugs? You know, it's interesting you should say that because the fact that we found out that misoprostol is a good abortifacient is, is it was women who discovered that. It wasn't even developed for that. It was developed as a completely other product. And it was women in, in Brazil who discovered that, you know, they couldn't get illegal abortions and they were dying from unsafe abortion. They read on the, on the side, you know, of, of, a, of a packet of Cytotec do not take if you're pregnant because it could cause a, an abortion. So, you know, they started taking it and sure enough, it caused an abortion, which is exactly what they wanted. And they shared the news with each other. 
it, it was only through them that we discovered that misoprostol, which had been developed as a gastric ulcer medication, had all these properties. To your point, there are many probably other things out there that could help. But once you have something that has been developed, tested, proven by millions, there's probably more data on the safety of mifepristone and misoprostol together than there is for almost any other drug given the number of women in the, in the world who have taken these. Why go and try anything else except for the fact that you're being withheld the safe one? That is the only reason in my book why I would go try something else. It's because I'm not being allowed to have the safe one. And that's the piece that I want to urge people that, you know, there should be outrage. There should be outrage that this safe, effective, easy to use product is being withheld, that we then have to have tweets about what else you could use or how you should just use misoprostol instead of mifepristone. I don't want to go there. I have a right to the, to the one that has all this evidence that works so well. Why can't I use that one? And that's what, in fact, now has been happening. People do have access to the good one, and they're going for it. And I hope more and more people learn that. I would like if we can talk about resources for people, where people can get more information and, and that kind of thing. The purpose of the Plan C website is to share evidence and information, all we know about these very important uh, pills. And uh, if you go to our website, we are the only ones who have a, a report card that reports on how and how best to get access to the product. Getting the pills is very important and trying to help people know what their options are. There are many ways of getting the pills and we list them and we give examples and we try to share as much information as we know so that people can make their own choices and choose their own risks and um, decide whether cost or time or what matters most to them. We just really feel like this should be people's uh, right to make a decision based on information. And the plancpills.org website will get you to the legal aid people. will get you to the uh, how to get a, how to get the pills people. will get you to the best people to go to if you need information on how to use to turn to if you're having questions after you've used. It's a website that is meant to get the resources you need if you're trying to self-manage your own abortion. And I will say that uh, National Advocates for Pregnant Women, uh, among other things we do, is provide pro bono criminal defense for people who've been arrested in relationship to their pregnancies. So people can go to our website to find out how to reach us at advocatesforpregnantwomen.org. We believe that no person should fear arrest because they became pregnant, because they gave birth, because of uh, being pregnant and using a drug, uh, because they attempted or actually had an abortion or had a miscarriage. In other words, there should be no role for law enforcement in pregnancy or pregnancy outcome. And people who do find that they are threatened or have been arrested in relationship to any aspect of their pregnancies should contact National Advocates for Pregnant Women. And, and we'll have uh, links to those websites in the show notes for people to, to follow. I remember when I interviewed you once for Undark, um, uh, 
you know, you said many things can go wrong during a pregnancy with zero drug use, without even caffeine, and yet if drugs are involved, we immediately blame the drug for causing any problem. Not scientific. And, and Francine said it uh, in a different way, but since every pregnancy has a 15 to 20% chance of being miscarried, uh, of going awry, especially in the early stages, from the perspective of a personified fetus, a fetus given rights, separate rights by the state, by becoming pregnant, a woman is endangering the life of an unborn child. And if by just becoming pregnant, a woman can be framed as somebody that putting the life of her unborn child at risk, it means that everyone with the capacity for pregnancy becomes a criminal suspect because of their capacity for pregnancy. Well put, and that, is, I mean, the show can be depressing at times, sorry listeners, but I think we did bring out some reasons for hope, but also an unflinching look at where this country is right now. Yeah. Thank you both so much for being on the program. Thanks for having us, and thanks, thank you both for doing the work of making these connections. Yeah. It's so nice to have even further confirmation that we are allies in this. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, thanks so much for threading that needle. And I think a lot of people listening are going to really be nodding their heads to, to the point about the war on drugs and, and this issue. That was Francine Cueto, co-founder of PlanCPills.org, and Lynn Paltrow, founder and executive director of National Advocates for Pregnant Women. Learn more at AdvocatesForPregnantWomen.org. Narcotica is an independent production by Christopher Morath, Zachary Siegel, and myself, Troy Farah. Our co-producer is Aaron Ferguson, and our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow us on Twitter, at Narcocast, or on Narcocast.com. It's been a whole year since we started this program, and we're so grateful to our supporters who helped make it happen. We're proud to be free of corporate influence. Perhaps you also hate listening to 10 minutes of ads at the beginning of most podcasts. No offense, Joe Rogan or Pete Holmes. So if you want to help us out, the best thing you can do is spread the word. Rate us wherever you get your podcasts. We're finally on Spotify. Tell your friends about us and graffiti our name on the subway tunnels. You can also join the Narcotica community at patreon.com narcotica. We're so grateful for the people that helped make this program possible. Thank you. If you want to send us a suggestion, tell us about a time that drugs have saved your life, or just want to say hi, you can email us at tips at narcocast.com. That's all for now. Take care. <laughs>